0: This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9
1: Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM,
0: Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. With less than a month until the election, the Republican propaganda machine is running at maximum speed. And the hypocrisy is in overdrive. In his new book, The Great American Hypocrites, Toppling the Big Myths of Republican Politics, our guest, Glenn Greenwald, uh, puts the GOP, God, and country into perspective. Greenwald is a former constitutional law attorney and is now a contributing writer at Salon.com, where his blog, Unclaimed Territory, appears. His political reporting and analysis have appeared in The New York Times, The Washington Post, and the great American and the American conservative, as well as a number of congressional reports, Glenn Greenwald. Welcome to Weekly Signals. How are you doing today?
1: Doing great, thanks.
0: Great. Well, um, I was uh, I was reading your uh, your blog last night. and You described an increasingly desperate, fear based uh, tactics being employed by the uh, McCain uh, Palin campaign. Uh, is this the uh, the sort of the writhing, the gasping of a campaign that it's in its last throes?
1: Clearly I think that's the case. If if you look at the way that Republicans have typically run campaigns over the past several decades, these, these themes that we're seeing now, that the Democratic candidates are subversive and um, anti American and, and kind of exotic and alienated from mainstream core American values, that's a constant. But the way in which there, those themes are being disseminated now just so explicitly and nakedly and aggressively, um, I think is is quite unusual. And it's obviously a byproduct of the fact that the polling data is is shockingly in, in Obama's favor, including in traditionally red states, um, and has been headed in that direction uh, for, for quite some time, for several weeks at least now. And even you know, the McCain campaign is openly acknowledging the fact that if the campaign turns on substantive issues, particularly the economic crisis, that their loss is inevitable, and that their only hope is to shift attention away from what's taking place and, and what has happened in the country under the, the last eight years of Republican rule, and then focus it on these kind of character and personality attacks that the Republicans always traffic in, but, but especially so this year.
0: It does really, uh, it is striking, this uh, campaign, um, on on how many times we've heard Sort of the naked truth coming, um, sort of leaking out. Uh, well, I, I don't even leak out. In this particular case, when you're talking about uh, them saying for outright, if we have, if we're forced to talk about the things that are really happening in the country, we are going to lose. i never, I don't recall a campaign being quite so, in some ways, transparent as this one has been.
1: Yeah, I think I think that is a surprise. I mean, one of the things that happens is. Uh, you know these these top level campaign aides start talking to reporters and start trying to demonstrate their own shrewdness and savviness and, and intelligence by boasting about their tactics and and sometimes that backfires if they become a little too blatant as as they did. I mean that Washington Post article opened the weekend, quoting senior McCain campaign officials saying that they wanted to turn the page on the economy, because if it stayed, if the focus remained there among voters, that inevitably would lose, and that the, the shift to William Ayers and Jeremiah Wright and the attacks on Obama were their last you know, hope, that basically now is something you hear out of the mouth of every Ob- uh, Obama operative. It's actually being featured in commercials, being run in battleground stage. So they're really using the McCain campaign's own words against him, and I guarantee you, you'll hear that from Obama repeatedly tonight in the debate.
0: Does this indicate something that I have thought for a while, uh, that McCain isn't really in control of his own campaign? Do you think this is a strategy that McCain signed off on, uh, explicitly signed off on, allowing – kind of pulling back the curtains for these campaign operatives to talk about what the internal thought process was of the campaign itself?
1: I doubt that. I mean, I think that I, what I do think is that conventional wisdom, which is more or less accurate, has been accurate all year has been that this is a overwhelmingly Democratic year for obvious yeah. reasons. I mean, yeah. the economy is horrific. The public hates the Bush administration and the Republican Party. Um, and, and what happened in 2006 is just a precursor for what's to come. So I think McCain knew that the only the prospect he had for winning uh, was to turn his campaign over to the, you know, kind of permanent Republican campaign apparatus that grew out of, you know, Lee Water and Roger Ailes and, and the despicable campaign they ran against Michael Dukakis, where, you know, the Republican operatives specialize in character and personality destruction, yes, they do. And so whether or not that's McCain's natural tendency, and one can debate whether or not that's what his career has been over the last couple decades. Um, it's certainly the case that he has, as you put it, turned his campaign over to, you know, disciples of Karl Rove, beginning with Steve Schmidt and, and, and the whole in-place apparatus, and, and you see the, the fruits of that now.
0: Well, it seems this is something, having worked in campaigns—by the way, if you get a chance, you should see a terrific documentary called Boogeyman. It's about Lee water It uh, just uh-huh. came out, and it, and it, it really—it's sort of the, the key— if you, if you, as you watch the, the McCain campaign and other rep- significant Republican campaigns, uh, watching this documentary and you know this stuff from, I'm sure, any from from just your own experience, you see the playbook has is really revealed to you in in in, in the actions of Lee Atwater. But this is something that has been in from my point of view uh, a real problem for John McCain. A, a year, just a year, little over a year ago, McCain was flying coach with his son and a couple of you know, sort of secretaries. His campaign was in the ditch, basically. He had no money. He was basically on a wing and a prayer. And when he won New Hampshire and it started to started to came uh, take on the air of an inevitability within the Republican campaign for president, these people gravitated to him. And, but these aren't the true McCain believers. These are operatives. These are people who are in, in the business of winning campaigns, not conveying... Uh, a, a, you know letting McCain be McCain. it wasn 't that long ago, it was about a month or so ago that I actually heard them say, and you can confirm if you've heard this as well that McCain said something and a, and a spokesman for the campaign said john McCain doesn 't speak for the campaign did you do you remember I think I mean, think w-
1: basically i mean what 's interesting here is i mean if you recall the two thousand primary election, the extraordinarily acrimonious fight between um, the Carl Rove the 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 Carl Rove led Bush campaign and, and John McCain's campaign in the primary uh war that they had. Yeah. That was unbelievably nasty and ugly and, and hateful. Uh particularly on the Bush side and, and John McCain ended up hating the entire Bush uh and Republican uh structure led by Carl Rove and, and that whole method of, of campaigning. I mean he was, you know, bitter about it and angry to the point where he, you know, opposed one Republican Bush agenda uh platform after the next for the next several years and even by all accounts talked to John Kerry about leaving the party in two thousand and four. That's how alienated he was from the Republican structure over what had happened. Um, and yet, uh, you know as I said, I think he realized that his only chance for having any hope of victory uh, was to, was to give his was to allow his campaign to be taken over by that same apparatus and they've never been close and and I mean I think you know I think part of what you're describing though is a little bit of, of, of this desire to shield John McCain from the dirtier campaign tactics mm-hmm. um, you know and, and the idea that well when we do something um, you know it, you, they want reporters to think that when the King campaign does something really low and dirty and deceitful, uh, that that's not John McCain approving of that, that that's, you know, these, these operatives that he may or may not control. I mean, at the end of the day, of course, John McCain controls his own campaign and is responsible for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you're right, there's there's probably some bit of free agency going on because they, they know that they're there to, to win and not to be beholden to McCain. I think
0: right we're, we're going to know this thing is really over when you start seeing... Uh, these operatives sort of throw each other under the bus. I, I think that'll be. I think the final days of this campaign, you're going to start seeing a lot of finger pointing as to whose idea was this and whose idea was that. Uh, that'll, I think, will be the uh, the real uh, kind of uh, canary in the coal mine, if you will, on this.
1: Yeah, you've seen a little bit of that with you know some internal disputes over who uh, was responsible for over coaching or over protecting. Sarah Palin and, and, and that sort of, um, blame uh, game going on. But, but you know, the McCain campaign is very close to imploding. I mean, if the polls are, are at all accurate, and there's no reason to think they're not, they're not going to salute the election. They're going to get slaughtered. Yeah. Um, and, and not just on the presidential level, but the House and the Senate as well. And so, you know, that's really what this country needs, is a complete expungement of, of this horrific right-wing movement um, that has so degraded all of our institutions and, and our political culture uh, for the last eight years at least. And, and we are on the verge of that. And I think you're right, as we get closer, and these last-ditch efforts look like they're going to fail, you're going to start to see a lot of internal recrimination, yeah. in, you know, the way that a movement does when, when they're rejected.
0: We're speaking with Glenn Greenwald. The uh, book is uh, The Great American Hypocrites, The Toppling of the Big Myths of Republican Politics. He's also the uh, author, the writer of the blog, Unclaimed Territories. You can find that on salon.com. Um, at what point does this rhetoric, at what point does this campaign tactic become truly harmful, truly detrimental to um, what I will assume will be at Obama, Barack Obama uh, presidency. Well,
1: well, look at look at what has happened over the last couple of days. I've been pretty amazed. I've actually been watching these rallies uh, just because of how extreme they are. John McCain and Sarah Palin are basically going around the country and all but saying. Um, that Barack Obama is is a an Arab terrorist um, who you know believes in black radicalism and and um, violence and, and hates the country, um, and you've seen some of these rallies where at the McCain rally yesterday when when he posed the you know ominous question who is the real Barack Obama someone yelled out terrorist. Yesterday, when when Sarah Palin brought up Bill Ayers, someone in the crowd yelled out, kill him. And it was unclear if they meant Ayers or or Obama. And then again today, when Sarah Palin was giving one of her raucous speeches, um, someone in the crowd yelled out treason when she was talking about uh, what Obama said about our troops in in Afghanistan. So there's a real ugliness that's being stoked on purpose. Um, to not just view Barack Obama as a candidate who deserves to lose, but as someone who is is actually you know, treasonous or or hateful or hostile, and potentially even in cahoots with America's Arab and terrorist enemies, as they would put it. So I, I think there's a real danger uh, that you're you're stoking up some very ugly resentments and and um, hostilities in in the country against uh, Obama.
0: Yeah, this is real. Uh, this is the thing that I I'm concerned about as when you when you as you look around it's hard to sort of i want to ignore some of these signs but we are in the what we're in the midst of what apparently is a significant and possibly depression inducing financial situation around the country and and we have uh a a black man running for president we have we have a lot of potential polarizing events taking. where obviously we're in in two wars that we're apparently losing. Both uh, Americans are. I, I I don't know where where we're going. And I just saw where the uh, where the army has designated or authorized uh, a di- a division, a battalion of, of the U.S. Army to be ready in case of civil unrest. I I don't want to I don't want to get <laughs> paranoid here. But this sort of the ingredients you look back in the history of of countries who have slid off the edge. We certainly are beginning to see some of the outlines of some of the same things happening here in this country. Now, am I talk me down from this? Am I am I being uh, overly uh, paranoid here?
1: well I, you know i, I think that it, it, it's smart to be aware of history and to be aware of risks that that exist in that other countries things that, that have happened in other countries America um, america's not immune from the same things that have happened In the past, so I I think it it makes sense. And, and, you know, economic, severe economic turmoil um, is always dangerous to a population um, when you're stoking up resentments on purpose the way that the Republicans have been. And they're not just running against, you know, Obama as a black man, but they're running around basically blaming the economic crisis on um, liberals in Congress who who forced banks to give mortgages to the poor and to minorities. Um, Trying to blame, you know, scapegoat minorities in, in times of severe economic crisis is always a dangerous. Thing to do, and then you're right. I mean, there have been efforts on the part of the Bush administration over the last couple of years to eliminate legal restrictions on on the deployment of U.S. military forces inside the United States, and there was that report that a military unit is being permanently assigned here. So. Yeah, and, and I'll just add to that. There was a member of Congress last week who, during the debate over the bailout, said that there were warnings from the administration that, that if the bailout didn't pass, that economic panic could become so severe that, um, that you know there could be real disorder of the type that would necessitate martial law. Um, so you don't want to trifle with these kind of explosive dangers, um, and, and to be aware of them is not to say they're around the corner about yeah. to happen, but it makes sense to to. Be wary of of of
0: of them. I think. Yeah, uh, I want to get to Sarah Palin, uh, Governor Sarah Palin of of, of Alaska. Uh, is she? Do you see her as sort of an, a, a sort of a perverse embodiment of the idea that anyone in an American can grow up to be president?
1: Well, you know, in the beginning, I mean, I was slightly ambivalent about about Palin's candidacy because I actually do think that there's a benefit. Um, to taking people who haven 't been in Washington for all that long um, and uh, giving them power I mean that was originally the idea of the model for how our, our government was supposed to work, the idea of citizen legislatures, legislators, and, and not permanent politicians. And it's one of the things that I always found appealing about Barack Obama's candidacy was that he wasn't a creature of Washington, mm-hmm. or even political power. Um, and I think judgment and and, and and belief system and ideology and competence are, are ultimately more important than how long someone has been in office. And I actually don't think that Sarah Palin is stupid by any means. She obviously has real political skills. But what has happened is that it's turned out that well, what's become clear is that she basically is the the sort of id of the right-wing page. I mean, Mm -hmm. she's incredibly um, narrow and myopic in her experience and her perspective, unbelievably incurious about the world, um, and extremely unthoughtful about virtually um, everything. And and she's just a very narrow slice of of the, the way that the world... Is and I think the fact that she can become vice president in one sense is good. Um, that that it means we don't have a caste system um, where you know you have to go through all sorts of establishmentarian approval in order to gain political power. That's a good thing. Um, but the fact that someone of her uh, outlook and, and perspective um, and what we've learned about her can can you know ascend to that level of power, I think, is also kind of frightening.
0: Yeah, I, in, in her acceptance speech, uh, the Republican convention. Uh, Frank Rich wrote about the uh, sort of the creepy, as he put it, the creepy subtext of her speech uh, in which she – I assume she didn't know who she was talking about or echoing the words of uh, a a right-wing columnist from the, the 40s and 50s, Westbrook Pegler. Uh, uh-huh. And uh, who who was a rabid anti-communist, a McCarthyite, and just generally um, a, a kind of basically a, a white supremacist. A white supremacist. Know. I, I, I know she didn't know who she was quoting. I know she had no idea what what the subtext of her of her speech was. But does is she not sort of an empty vessel for for people who are who are her handlers, or is she? You know, I
1: think I, I mean, I, you know, I think that's always hard to say. The extent to which. She is, or any politician is mouthing their own beliefs versus uh just having words put into their mouths I mean of course, that's said about Barack Obama yeah. frequently that that what he really does is read from a teleprompter um you know, look, I think she is a recognizable um, where she comes from culturally and politically is quite recognizable. As I said, I think she's the head of the right-wing movement. Yeah. The idea that you know she comes from this evangelical Christian background that became increasingly politicized in the 1990s as part of the culture wars and you know has sort of adopted this kind of simplistic template of right-wing political slogans about limited government and, um, you know, venerating the military and, and American wars. Um, I mean, I think that's all probably pretty natural to well, her. And,
0: and married to a secessionist.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, clearly, I mean, states' rights and, and that sort of extremist right-wing agenda um, is is very much a part of, of what her background is. And so, you know, sure, I think obviously someone's writing her speeches, um, but at the same time, I think it's she feels comfortable with that message.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I – uh, well – uh, do you, Do you think she understood what she was talking about or that she understood what she was saying when she said she thought that the the vice president should have more power vested in the office of of, of the vice presidency uh when she, during the debate with Biden? do you think she really understood no, she,
1: i think i think i mean i think you know clearly she was ready to answer questions about what the office of the vice president was um, and I think she was clearly even Uh, ready to answer the question about Dick Cheney's theory that it's part of a hybrid, part of the legislative and executive branch, but not really entirely part of either. Uh, But I think that what ended up happening, most of that debate, including that that answer, was that she had a talking point that she had mastered. Uh, but then when she elaborated on it, it became sort of incoherent babbling. Mm-hmm. And I think the idea that the vice president's role was supposed to be flexible was something that she was ready to to articulate, and that got translated into, um, you know, if it if it's necessary, we can increase its power.
0: Yeah, um, sure, and, you it, betcha. It, that
1: idea is absurd <laughs> yes, and, and, and you know exotic and bizarre. Um, and I think that's how it came
0: out. Well, we've seen the the consequences of it of a uh, a vice presidency that's out of control um you know it, it was funny after the after the debate uh there was the polls were obviously they do the spot polls they do all the kind of polls to follow up so most and, and the polls showed that biden was clear far and away the winner if you if you will in the in the debate but uh 40 of those polled said that they thought that sarah palin was qualified to be president of the united states and I'm, if i do i have that right is that i know that 40% thought she she had met the threshold i want to know who these 40% are
1: well they're they're the same 40% of the people who continue to support George Bush for you know six years into his presidency, even after it became apparent that it was a failed presidency, it's the 40% of the people who, you know, basically are supporting John McCain. I mean, there's a there's a solid foundation that's you know between 30 and 40% um, of a, a right wing faction in this country that is a distinct minority. Um, but you could take any poll of any issue, uh, even the most discredited opinions, if they are embraced by the Republican machinery, will be supported by roughly 30% of the people. I mean, that's the same. Who support the war in Iraq, for example, still to this day. Um, and so, if you start off with thirty percent, what she's doing, and add on another ten percent from sort of low information. You know, kind of uh, independent, unaffiliated voters who sort of like her style and and her spunk or you know whatever they've decided about her that they like. Um, It's pretty easy to see how you get to 40 percent. But still, what polls show, and they show it more after the debate, is that you know it's it's a pretty significant number, a a, a statistic that 60 percent of the voting public believes that a candidate for high office is just unqualified. Not even that they're not the best candidate; they're just (laughs) patently unqualified. <laughs> and the fact that, you know, majorities believe that about her still, yeah. is that, yeah. even after the debate, I think is obviously a sign that she's become a real anchor on John McCain's neck.
0: We're speaking with Glenn Greenwald, the author of the book Great American Hypocrites, Toppling the Big Myths of Republican Politics and author of uh, uh, the blog Unclaimed Territory. Now, I, uh, I, I think personally, I think the American electorate is suffering from a national case of Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, I think we 've come to identify with our Republican captors, and i do, I do think that that sort of explains some of the popularity of the Republicans I, because frankly, given the campaign that McCain has run i can 't believe he 's still at forty three percent I really can 't i, I don 't yeah. I, I, I understand some of it 's a reluctance to 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 buy into Barack being president, but he 's run I think the worst presidential campaign of my lifetime.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you know, in, in, in the uh, on the one hand, you can look at the polls, and, and me I mean, Obama has between a six- to ten-point lead, depending on which poll you look at, and you can say, I can't believe that the polls are that close, given what has happened in this country over the last eight years and the campaigns that each of them has run. Yeah. Um, but then you can look at it the other way, and you can say, it's rather remarkable that 30 days before the election... Um, the sort of unknown, young, skinny, you know, liberal African-American Chicago um, is running eight points ahead, including lots of red states, um, of the, you know, conservative, maverick, press-loving, white war hero. (laughs) Um, You know, that's pretty extraordinary in and of itself. Um, And and I think it's important not to lose sight of just how extraordinary an event Barack Obama's election will be in America, and it's important not to downplay that. I think, um, you know, having him have an eight to ten point lead thirty days out is is pretty remarkable, and it's in its own way. If you look at it that way, I, yeah,
0: you're right. I guess I just grown so used to in this short period of time, I've grown very used to Barack Obama, and I, I've sort of become very comfortable with him. So for me, it's uh, it's a more it's a little more difficult to see why McCain is is where he is. Um, I, I have a couple. More questions before we have to wrap it up. But John McCain's health, um, I want to know as an American, as a a voting American, I want to know a couple of basic things. What is the state of his health? I know that we, he there was a very abbreviated length, I think a half an hour, that some reporters were allowed to see 1,200 pages worth of his medical records, weren't allowed to take anything in there, that they could copy these records with, they were out of order, the rest of it. He's had cancer that we know of at least two, I think four times, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, his chances of not surviving his first term are pretty high. Um, we don't know, now I don't want to know, uh, and I think this is a question that needs to be asked by the, by the Barack campaign, and that is... In a scenario where he's receiving chemotherapy or radiation therapy for melanoma, which is what he's had, is Sarah in charge? Is is the vice president in charge while while a, our president undergoes uh, chemotherapy? Uh, I, I, I I guess what I'm talking about is the state of his health. And what? Well, uh, you
1: know, I think I think it's a sign of, of how passive and, and ineffective our press corps is that we don't know the answers to those questions or we're not going to find them out. You know, we can do actuarial charts of what the average 72 year old you know, mail um, has in terms of life expectancy, uh, but he's not the average 72-year-old male. Uh, he was a prisoner of war for five and a half years and suffered pretty severe wounds. Yeah. Uh, his body took a pretty heavy beating during much of that time, um, and as you say, he's had four separate bouts of episodes of serious melanoma.
0: Melanoma is uh, a pernicious, yet, pernicious yeah, cancer.
1: Yeah, we we don't know when. And those medical records, even the ones that those reporters were allowed to examine, um, were inconclusive and incomplete, and and. Not uh, the type of disclosures that uh, candidates are typically required to produce. Now, there, you know, uh, Joe Biden and Sarah Palin have also not really produced their medical records. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there are questions surrounding the birth of, of Sarah Palin's last daughter and, and uh, last uh, child, and people have asked to see those. But those have not been forthcoming. Biden has, has released very little of his medical mm-hmm. history as well, and he actually had some aneurysms in the past. But obviously, the concern uh, is heightened. Um, at the top of the ticket uh, because the death or incapacity of that person um, would mean that someone else would become president, in this case Sarah Palin. And and I'm amazed that that hasn't become more of an issue.
0: Yeah, I, I am too, and I, I I just wonder when I look at him, it's not as if it's not obvious. There's something wrong with that, the, the left side of his face. It's obvious that he's been through, as you said, a lot of physical trauma. We know he's had cancer. And it's the elephant in the room as far as I'm concerned. What is the state of his health? And the fact that they will not release the full, they won't make a full disclosure of his health records leads me to believe that there's something seriously wrong with him. Um, well, I'm...
1: and just one other point on that, which is those records that were made available to the to reporters, as you say, for a very abbreviated uh, period of time, uh, were were not current. They they went up, I think, till March of this last year, um, and there have been all kinds of you know rumors and speculation, and they're just that. But but they deserve to be answered. That this year McCain has had more severe problems um, with melanoma uh, or other medical problems, but we don't have any of his medical records for the last eight months.
0: Wow. Yeah, it just really is stunning. And you're right when you critique the, uh, the national press um, on this issue. I want, I want to throw one thing out at you. I, I'm, I'm always looking for pithy ways to describe the, what the Republican, Republicans have been doing. And I want to run a, run a phrase by you, uh, a friend of mine came up with. Should we start referring to them as borrow and bomb ideologues?
1: well it's it's accurate I mean you know it's it's if you you look at what our country has done for the last eight years, the reason why we're our our national debt has has doubled to an extraordinary almost eleven trillion dollars. Okay. Um, is because we have been um, basically borrowing money from China and Saudi Arabia and the Middle East uh, in order to go and bomb and occupy and, and start wars against other countries in order to defend those countries from whom we're borrowing. Um, where basically we've become you know, sort of the classic authoritarian state teetering on third worldism, which is armed to the teeth um, and yet impoverished. And uh, you know to, to look at our defense spending, um, which is double the nearest competitor, which is China, um, and more than the entire rest of the world combined. Yeah. Um, you know, And at the same time that we uh, continue to go under... Enormous amounts of debt under the republican party that, that claims to be for small government and, and fiscal responsibility yeah. um, is extraordinary. And You listen to McCain, and he's ready for you know many more wars.
0: Yeah, I just I'm sick and tired of hearing tax and spend Democrats. And I thought, and this phrase I think is a is a good way to sum sum up in just a few words what we've been subjected to in these last eight years: borrowing bomb ideologues. Yep. Thank you very much, Glenn Greenwald. Thank you for being here on Weekly Signals, and good luck to you uh, uh, in the future. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having me. Bye-bye.
0: To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week... I'm Nathan Callahan, and I'm Mike Kaspar, and this is Weekly Signals.